0: Um, well, we're in chapter 8, verse 21, the opening part of Mark, after the the, in, the uh, introduction, where we were given privilege and in, in, information about who Jesus was, or is, who Jesus is, then we saw Jesus presenting his claim in Galilee, inviting people to follow him, some followed the crowds, he was popular with the crowds, but we also saw that the rulers began to reject him. So we see the dividing of, of the ways even in those opening verses in one14 through 312. Last night we looked at a big section, which could have spent a lot more time on, but Mark 3, 13 through uh, 821. Two sections really. Now Jesus focuses on the disciples who have begun who are following him. First He chooses the 12 at the beginning of that first part, and then in the middle, at the beginning of the second sort of half of this section, he sends them out. And we saw false answers to who Jesus was and how they were dismissed. He's not out of his mind. He's not demon-possessed. He's not John the Baptist come back to life. He's not just some prophet. None of these are are adequate answers. And to his disciples, he reveals his authority and power in an ever-increasing way. Uh, was one of the uh, sort of the heart of the first half of of this major central section is is casting out the legion of demons in a very unclean and ungodly place, demonstrating that he is not only uh, acts with the authority of God, but he is with all power over evil spirits, and he is the restorer of sanity. Um, Then in the second section, it goes even further with his disciples, because he feeds the multitude of the as God felt it fed Israel of old. He, like Yahweh of old, walks on the sea. But we see them not getting it, not catching on. They seem to be so obtuse. They're almost as bad as the Pharisees. They're not getting it up before we are too critical of them. Remember what they're having to get their minds around. Amen. That Jesus is the God-man. Amen. That he's a human being who is actually God come in the flesh, 100%, 100%, and he's acting like God, and it's hard to get their minds around this, this, this person, but, you know, and the Christian faith, by the way, does not believe in the incarnation because of some uh, philosophy, we don't believe in the incarnation because it's a logical deduction. The Christian Church has always believed in the by the Incarnation I mean that the Son of God became a human being without ceasing to be the Son of God. 100% Son of God, 100% human being. And don't ever be deceived, He is still there. It is as the God man that He has His place at the, at the right hand of the Father. He did not leave His humanity behind or else we would have no salvation. We would have we, But He has joined us forever to the Blessed Trinity. And so, um, the Christian faith believes that because nothing else would explain that Jesus and the disciples of it. Um, it was an empirical thing. Nothing else would explain it, that it is at the heart of our salvation. Without it, our salvation is vain. And so, here, they're beginning to get that idea. I'm going to, I know we have the, we're, we're, we're starting here um, at, Verse 22, but I'm, that the blind man had been saved. though you know that, event. I'm not going to read it, where Jesus has to take the blind man out and touch him twice. First he sees men like trees walking, and then, then he's after the second touch, he's, he's clarified he can see. Um, we'll mention that again in a minute. This section is bounded, by the way, by the two blind men, the healing of the two blind men. This one, the second touch guy, and then blind Bartimaeus is the conclusion of it at the end. But I want to look straight at Peter's confession here, beginning verse 27. Each of these sections has begun with, back in chapter uh, 1, with the, uh, verse uh, 16, with the calling of the first four disciples. Then chapter um, uh, 3, verse um, 13, when Jesus moves from a general invitation to everyone focusing on the disciples we have the choosing of the twelve in chapter 6 then with chapter verse 6 and 7 we have the sending out of the twelve and now we have Jesus questioning the twelve and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples now we're way up north now Caesarea Philippi is way up in the north of Palestine I, I, should have, I have a map that shows all this, and maybe I should have brought it at this point and put it on the screen. But we're far away, as far away from Jerusalem you get almost and still be in Palestine, still be anywhere near in that area. So they're going up to Caesarea Philippi, the villages around it, and on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, on the way he was asking them, um, Who do people say that I am? Well, you already know the answer to that, don't you? You already got it in. In chapter 6, they're talking about Herod. And so the disciples answered. Um, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Of course, these are all resurrected or come back to the land. After moving that aside, then he, said, then he said to them, now we come to the question. It comes in full expression. But you, you have been with me. You've been pretty obtuse recently you have been with me, you have seen, you have borne witness to who I am. But you, who do, who do you say that I am? Um, and of course, Peter answers for him and says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, it adds, the Son of the living God. Um, I Peter doesn't have it fully yet. They don't have it, but they're in the right direction. They know that Jesus is like no one else. He is the Christ. There's never been another Christ, the promised one who was to come, the, the Spirit-anointed one. And they, they, even if they don't fully realize what Son of God means, they know that there is none other like this. Peter confesses it. You know, in a little bit, in a, in a few verses, we have the uh, the transfiguration up on the mountain, and there God adds to this in the sense that you remember the words of the Lord, of God there to the three disciples, Peter, well to the people who are there, but it's, it's Peter, James, and John with Jesus, where he, when he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Reinforcing and enlarging what Peter has said here. But Peter's getting it right. He's coming in the right direction. Finally. It's like they're so obtuse. to. They got it. You didn't think you'd ever get it. They're, they're moved in the right direction. And Jesus affirms that. And, and he says, "You, uh, um, Jesus, Jesus uh, tells them, do 'Now don't, don't you tell anyone about him.' Uh, and because he wasn't ready yet for the people who didn't know him as well as the disciples to tell them this, because you know they would think he was they are a Messiah. They let 'Let's get an army and overthrow the Romans.' And that's not what what this is all about. So much is that not what it's all about." That he immediately begins to tell them what it is about. Mm-hmm. He is the Christ, okay? And he says, Now what does that mean? And what does he tell them it means? In verses 31 and following. Be, he has to be crucified. To be the Christ means he's going to the cross. And he began to teach them the Son of Man, that term we did, we talked about yesterday, must suffer many things and this is the first of three Passion Predictions and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly and you can imagine how all the disciples stood there almost with their mouths Peter Peter's the one who speaks you know took him Peter takes him aside. It's like Jesus. It's like you have the image of Peter pulling Jesus aside, and he's going to instruct Jesus here. That's always a dangerous thing to do. But <laughs> said Peter. But Peter took, takes him aside, um, and began to rebuke him, telling him, "No, this is not the way it's going to be done." And what does Jesus say? Uh, Get behind me, Satan! For you are. Uh, you are setting your mind on not on the thing. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, on the human way of doing things. Now you need to realize Jesus is not simply being abusive by saying, "Get behind me, Satan." He is. This is a very appropriate statement for him here, because Peter is acting as the agent of Satan with, this, with these words. You know, this is the temptation back in the garden. I mean back in the wilderness to start with when Jesus is there what we don't have the details of it in mark but in the other Gospels what is Satan tempting Jesus to do? in every one of those temptations he's tempting he begins with if you're the Son of God do this he's tempting him to fulfill the role of the Son of God as he in a human way instead of in obedience to the Father at every point it's do it your way Jesus Do it the easy way, Jesus, and it'll work out, Jesus. Do it the easy way. And Jesus continually returns the answer to him in one way or another that to be the Son of God needs to obey the Father and to take the way of the cross. That's from from the temptation in the wilderness. It will be the same temptation that happens in the Garden Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Yes, Jesus has made the decision, made the commitment, to to live in obedience to the Father as the Son of God. Made it before, probably, but certainly a temptation in the wilderness to begin with, at the beginning of his ministry. The course of direction has been settled. But, you know, in, 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 in the garden, he is not merely, I mean, he's not merely facing the horror of crucifixion. And you have to realize, none of us really, yeah. really can get the heart of the crucifixion. Yeah. I heard someone say, well, our equivalent would be the electric chair. Yeah. Yeah. No, it wouldn't. Yeah. Why? Because the, we are so humane these days. The electric chair and the lethal injection are, are instant, painless, more or less, and private. There's no public display or anything of the kind. The cross was intended to be long, drawn out, painful. Yeah. And utterly shameful, exposed naked in the most prominent place near the town where everybody walked by and could see you. The, the Romans, the point was to crucify people where, people, where they would be seen. Um, and for a long, slow, and shameful death, with your naked body hanging there where everybody could gawk at it. Um, as modern people, we can never really grasp what the verse in Hebrews, the, the effect of the verse in Hebrews, had on, the, on, on those first century Christians when it said he endured the cross, despising the shame. We have nothing anywhere near equivalent to the shame of the cross. There's nothing that our imagination can grasp that will take us there. Um, so if Jesus in the garden, even though he had made that commitment as the Son of God, he's facing, but he's not facing merely all the pain and shame of a public crucifixion. Other people would face that. He's facing that, but he's in doing so, he's also facing... Bearing the sin of the world upon the cross and having to endure whatever he had to endure when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he had not struggled in the garden, his humanity would have been so different from mine that you couldn't have called it the same thing. Mm, yeah. um, and so, but Satan right here is presenting Jesus, I mean, Peter right here is presenting Jesus with the same temptation he is telling him that he's not supposed to go the way of the cross. He's acting like Satan did in the garden. And he's acting, giving Jesus the temptation that he will have to overcome again. Satan did it in the wilderness they would have to overcome in the garden. And so he is, he is offering Jesus the wrong way, the self-way, not the God way of going to the cross. So when Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, he's not being abusive to him. He's, he is, it, it, it is a real temptation for Jesus. And Jesus turns away from him. Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the way God's doing this. You only you only see this from a, a human deformed human point of view. And then but why do you think Peter did not want Jesus to go to the cross? Because he wanted him to stay there and, and do things the way that Peter and all the other mankind, the Jewish people wanted him to be. No doubt that is true. Expected him to be a human king, and probably expecting him to be a human king, and you know I'm sure there was to some degree there was a genuine love for Jesus. here. Yeah. You know, let's not let's not just run Peter down, you know, conquering Messiah to drive the Romans out since oh, they hated him so much. That's all what things. they really wanted, probably yes, but in 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 the in in the instance here, no doubt he loved. There's a love for Jesus, and he doesn't want Jesus to suffer. But the the other entailment with Jesus makes clear is if you follow a crucified Lord, you too have to be crucified. You have to carry your cross. Peter is sensing also the implications for himself and for the others. And Jesus, of course, then goes on to make that clear. If anyone, and calling a crowd to him in verse 34, with his disciples, he (laughs) said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he goes on, truly I say to you, some of standing here won't see death until they see the glory coming to power. That's fulfilled of course immediately in the transfiguration. You may have other fulfillment too. But here Jesus makes it the, the, the implication of following the crucified Lord clear. Now a couple things here I want us to see clearly. Jesus doesn't do that until they come to recognize him as the Messiah. It's taken all this time walking with Jesus. They were attracted to him at the beginning. Whatever information they had about him, we had what we had from the prologue. But whatever, when Jesus called those first four disciples, and they began to follow him. He called Levi and the others came. They were attracted to him at the beginning. They left their old their old way of life and they began to follow him. They've been coming along with him, even all their ups and downs and struggles. They've come now to grasp. They they love him. They've come to grasp that he is, uh, through all their, that he is the Christ, and they're at least on the verge of understanding that he is truly the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. They've come to grasp that. And Jesus does not present them with this until they have come to grasp that. Are you with me? But this is a real new turning point. This is a key turning point. Now they're following him, they've come to grasp him. This is the reason why I had to sing the one verse of I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Because they had already decided to follow Jesus. They had been doing it and they come to this place. On well, them, now they're finding out what following Jesus means. You've decided you've been following me, Jesus says. Yes, you have. Now I'm going to tell you what that means. I'm going to the cross. I'm gonna suffer. He also says, of course, on the third day I'm gonna rise. That goes over their head. <laughs> They don't have any background for that. You know, he says it, but it's just like that, that they don't get they don't focus on that. They hear suffering. They hear crucifixion. Mm-hmm. They hear rejection by the rulers mm-hmm. and so forth. And and Jesus. and so you are now I'm calling on you to die. Uh oh. I can't turn back. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm convinced this is who he is. We've been walking with you, we've seen you, we've come to this conclusion, we've convinced. We don't want to turn back. But going forward, it's going to be really costly. Am I ready to go forward? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? Well, the rest of this section, until we get to the, uh, the end of uh, chapter 10 helps us to understand that mostly from a negative point of view. That is, for the most part, it shows us what not not taking up the cross looks like. Mm. Because of course, to take up the cross and follow Jesus is to deny oneself. Now, we need to be very clear on what that means. I've heard people say, we deny our own self-interest. No, that's not right. God appeals to your self-interest. God offers you eternal glory. If anything, you're not interested enough. You're playing around with other things, and you're not taking the great thing God offers you. Now, my self-interest can lead me astray. Scripture tells me i have to love my neighbor as myself. I can pursue what I proceed to be, pursuing my self-interest in a way that hurts you or hurts somebody else, that's wrong. Boring. But but it is not my self-interest per se that I'm called to die to here. It is my self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. It is self-promotion. It is putting myself above other people. It is my, you know, putting other people down so that I can be put up. It is worrying about who is the greatest. It is... I, I, I do not die to myself when somebody else is promoted and I am not and I have envy within my heart. When somebody else is praised and I am not and I am jealous within. You know, those scripture verses seem so benign. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know how easy it is to be jealous of those who rejoice and to think those who weep deserve what they got. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Look every man not only on his own affairs but also on the affairs. Of, in honor of preferring one another. That's being glad when somebody else is is praised or promoted. Amen, Lord, amen, amen. You know, this is what is this is what is meant to be to be called to be to be dying to oneself. And friends it's not going to an altar a second time. We're having an emotional experience. We're going around and feeling my pulse, my spiritual pulse all the time. That is the essence of what we have called sanctification. It's death to my own self-centeredness. Now, God abhors a vacuum. There can be no spiritual vacuum any more than there can be a physical vacuum. And Mark doesn't focus on this, but of course, be dead to my own self-centeredness is done only by the grace of God and it is God's. Every Christian has God's spirit, but there is a filling of God's spirit that comes in to take that place of my own self-centeredness. Mark doesn't talk about this a lot, but never forget, he begins by talking about Jesus is the Spirit Baptizer. Uh, the rest of the New Testament will fill this in. But this is this is. It doesn't matter what experience you have professed or how many times you've been to an altar or what have you. This is the essence. Of what God has for his people and, and it's not new it's out here with Jesus it's right there in Genesis it's right there at Mount Moriah you probably shouldn't take a lot of time to spend on this but it's right there at Mount Moriah Abraham has learned who God is he's learned to trust God he's been walking with him for more than 25 years God has proved himself. God has taken care of him. After 25 years, God fulfilled his promise and gave him a son. And then God says, go to the mountain and sacrifice him. What? Mm -hmm. It's not only that he loves his son. His son is through whom God's going to fulfill the promise. But Abraham has to come to that place of complete surrender and trust in God. And, you know... It's not, it was not a test of Abraham's faith in the sense that God wanted to find out if Abraham had the faith. It is the making of Abraham's faith real. For mm-hmm. well, that faith does not become real, fully real, until Abraham raises the knife and God says, okay. Mm-hmm. And so here, this is what we are, we are called. Now, it is a call. There is a, there's often for many people not everybody is the same, but there's often for many people um, a specific time when they really are do realize God calls them to, to die to themselves or self-centeredness and take up the cross and follow See, somebody, somebody what does what somebody carrying a cross do? They're on their way to crucifixion. What plans do they have for tomorrow? None. You know, every... Uh, a uh, Psychologist, clinical psychologist, used to be my neighbor, he told me one day, he said, and he interviewed people for social security benefits, disability, all sorts of stuff. He said, it's really interesting. He says, everybody has a plan. <laughs> that is, everybody has a scheme by which they're going to live, they're going to make They had a way they were going to put it together, whatever it may be. Uh, everybody has a plan. And here, but the person going to the cross, carrying the cross, has no plan. No agenda for tomorrow. Every one of you has got a plan for what you're going to do when you leave here. You know, sometimes their plans interrupted. But we have a plan. We have a scheme. We know what we're going to do. So the, the one carrying the cross has no agenda for tomorrow because he's going to the cross. And so to follow Jesus, then, is to give up my own agenda, my own self-centeredness. Now, friends, you can't, you can't do this to yourself. You can present yourself to God, commend yourself to him, but he has to come into your life and do this. But then it is also a daily walk. There is a dying daily that is involved. There is a renewal of this, and a putting it place, concrete in our lives. And I myself, I'll be honest with you, I've been very concerned in my over the years now, in my experience in the holiness movement, because we've talked about sanctification as if it were just glibly run the words off, second so definite experience, delivers you from inbred sin, that sort of thing. People come to the altar, come to the altar, pray, have an experience, you've got it. And it's often become very superficial. Mm-hmm. This is not easy. It's not something that you just jump into. It's something God has to bring you to. It was 25 years before it, where God had 25 years of experience with Abraham and 25 years of experience with God before God brought him to Mount Moriah and it has to breathe but this is where God wants to bring us um, and so now that the disciples have a grasp who Jesus is they are his followers they love him now he says this is what is coming next this is where you, you go now then we have we do have the transfiguration it comes in verses, uh, beginning in verse, uh, whatever it is, chapter 9. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but to be crucified. And this whole section is the long journey to Jerusalem, uh, to the cross. And the further you get, the more intense it gets, and the more nervous the disciples get. Um, as you can imagine, if I'd have been with him, I'd have been nervous too. Um, so after six days, Jesus takes up the Mount of Transfiguration. And you know, again, their naivety is shown Peter 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 wants to stay there. Let's build three booths so we can hang out here, Jesus. Right. This is a great hanging out place. I right. love this retreat, Jesus. It's right. a great hanging <laughs> out Let's not move right. anyplace place else. That's right. And of course the voice goes from heaven. And he says, Let's make one for you, for Elijah, for Moses and for you, sort of putting him on equal footing. Mm. And what's the voice from heaven say? Mm. This, this, this my son. is my my beloved son. Listen to him. What's he been saying? He's been saying, I'm going to the cross, and you take up your cross and follow me. And God, in this context, this is my beloved son. He's he's the unique one. Listen to him and to what he's been telling you. When you, they come down from the mountain, of course, and they cannot, in verse 14 of chapter 9, and the disciples who have been down there haven't been able to cast the evil spirit out of that young boy, and Jesus does so and so forth. Again, we see the impotence of the disciples. They have been out casting out evil spirits. But now, in the face of the cross, in the face of what they're doing there, they're, their own impotence, and Jesus comes in, of course, and does it. And, and casts out the, the, uh, the evil, the, the unclean spirit. Uh, from from the boy, um, and then in verse thirty of chapter eight. Oh, let me put it this way. I want to go back to the blind, the first blind man. The first blind man simplifies the disciples at this point. After he's had one touch, he sees the men like trees walking, and they see. They Peter has admitted, has confessed Jesus as the Messiah and Christ. The one who is to come, the unique one, but they're still seeing. They haven't had the second touch yet. They're still seeing as men, like men with trees walking, um, because they haven't grasped the taking of the cross and following Him. As we'll see, blind Bartimaeus at the end is just the opposite. Um, but here's they are the they are the ones who have, who's, who see who Jesus is, but like as uh, men as trees walking. Um, and so they come through Galilee or coming near to Jerusalem. They did up Caesarea Philippi. They come through Galilee in verse 30. And we have the second passion prediction. He doesn't want anybody to know because he's talking to the disciples. And this is it's, it's here. It's called the second passion uh, prediction. But in verse 31 it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, This is not something that he says to them one time. He's repeatedly saying it to them on this part of their journey. He's trying to get it through to them. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. They were afraid what this meant. And and so, but he is he is trying to, he's teaching them at this, this point as they go along. And then... In verse 33, as the disciples go this way, we have the grand example of what it means not to be taking up the cross and following Jesus. What's going on in verses 33 and following? <clears> They're <throat> arguing for arguing themselves. Even, even they know it's well, not, not the right thing to do Amen. because they come into Capernaum and sit down and Jesus says something. Uh, What were you guys talking about as we were going along? it's like, we do you want (laughs) to tell (laughs) him? We don't don't want to tell him that. And they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He calls the twelve and he says to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one says, Child of my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, And so fundamentally, one of the fundamental marks of not taking of not taking up the cross and following Jesus is to be arguing over who's the greatest. We don't have any of that in our churches, do we? I mean, how how, how many church, church struggles are right over this very thing? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you criticizing other people in the church? Or why is somebody, this group, criticizing this group? To cut them down because we think we're better than they are. We want to show them we're better than they are. It's the source of backbiting and much criticism. And um, almost all the contention that takes place in the church is, is the source. Is, comes from the sense of who is to be the greatest instead of in honor, preferring one another. Amen. Um, uh, and really be rejoicing when someone else is promoted Amen. or is honored or is lifted up. Um, and you know, C.S. Lewis, I have to put him somewhere or else they wouldn't think I was here. <laughs> but says that, that, that God's, God's um, goal for each of his people is to make us the kind of person that that you could have or I could have built the grandest cathedral that the world had ever known. Mm -hmm. And know it was the grandest, but take delight in it just as if someone else had built it. -hmm. I don't think any of us are going to quite get there in this life. That's that's, that's 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 God's ultimate goal for us in eternity, but we're supposed to be rejoicing when the other person succeeds. Rejoice when the other person is on. And friends, it's a if we're if we have a critical spirit of others in the church for causing that kind of thing, it is sin. Amen. It is sin, and and we are not living in a way that pleases the Lord. We are, we are living as those who refuse to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And there's no alternative. There isn't any other way to follow him. There's no other road, there's no other route. You can't get off this interstate and take a local road and get around the traffic jam. Mm. This is this is this is the the only way to follow Jesus. And I'm just afraid we have professed much holiness. I don't I'm not just talking about anything, I'm talking about the whole holiness movement, but we've been full of this kind of garbage. Amen. Of unholiness and ungodliness. And Jesus right here condemns it condemns it clearly this is exactly what it does not mean to take up the cross and follow Jesus he goes on to the next section here Uh, John of course he sees somebody else serving Jesus casting out demons in Jesus name and he tells him stop it you're not one of us don't you dare do it and Jesus rebukes him he says if if he's not against us he's for us if somebody's actually casting out demons in my name and, and, God, and it's, it's happening, then he, he's the person who's not against not not against us is is for us. And this is you know it's very easy. Um, it, another morph of the same kind of thing is to think, well, our group is superior to everybody. Else. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not saying everybody else is doing all that God wants to do. I'm not even saying their 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 belief is necessarily the absolute correct one or what have you. But we are called to a godly charity for other Christians who are not like us and who may be very different from us but who love Jesus and are seeking to serve him. Mm-hmm. They may have some different ideas or different approach, but we are called if if, if we're to live in holiness and godliness, if we take up our cross and follow and follow Christ, we're we're called to 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 love and to reach out out to them and to love them and not to criticize them and cut them down. Jesus goes on and temptations to sin you know of the course, there's quite a bit of hyperbole in here If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off what have you for your eye, pull it out but you know the one who takes up the cross and follows Jesus and what he's saying is you do what you have to do to avoid sin if there's something in your life you need to get rid of get rid of it now you can't just tell everybody else what they ought to get rid of you don't necessarily know Right. but in your own heart, don't put yourself in the place of temptation. The person who's not carrying the cross um, is attempt- the temptation is to play with sin, to play with temptation. Anyway, I can sort of enjoy it a little bit without anything. No, Jesus says you got to be radical about this this thing. And how radical it is, you know. There's then there's Jesus begins to show. There's kind of a little interlude on this journey that begins in chapter 10, verse 1. Again, it says he left there. We're not told exactly where. He's already come to Galilee and went to the region, but he, he went goes to the region of Judea. And then we have his teaching about divorce, uh, which the disciples feel is quite radical, um, that, you know, marriage is... is one man and one wife, what God has joined together, let not anybody put asunder. And he, he contradicts the pride of our self-centeredness by bringing the little cho- by the little children. They're bringing little children to Jesus, and the disciples say, "He's got more important things to do. Don't ask this. do this." Jesus says, "No, no. Bring them to me." That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. What does he mean? Does he mean we're to be simple-minded, not to use wisdom as mature people, but to be simple-minded? No, he doesn't mean that at all. He doesn't mean we're to be foolish, but he does mean that we're to the the, the, the small child is, is trusting of his parents and receives and accepts and That is exactly how we are to be to God. We are to come to God as the child who trusts his parent, throwing himself upon upon God. This is what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus. in regard to carrying carrying the cross, following Jesus, dying to myself, in regard to material things and wealth. And we have this account of the rich young man, beginning in verse 17. This is a uh, very special passage in the Gospels. How unique this young man is. Um, We're actually not told how young he is in this text. We call him the rich young ruler. Mark doesn't tell us. We don't even know in Mark that he's rich until the end. But um, um, most people who came to Jesus, they came because they were paralytic. Somebody brought them because they had an issue of blood because their child was sick because something else. They came to him. Uh, others came to Jesus because He called. He calls the disciples. He calls Levi. Most everybody has either come to Jesus because they have a need, or they follow Jesus because Jesus has called them. This man is neither. He does not come because he has any physical need whatsoever, and Jesus does not call him. But we see he's not any. And, he, and uh, as he was setting out on his journey towards Jerusalem, a man came, ran up and knelt before him, verse 17, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, he's got his values right. He's talking about the right thing. Inheriting eternal eternal life. And um, Jesus kind of smacks him, it seems like this. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus gives him two answers, but the first one each has two parts. Why do you call me good? There's no one that is good except God alone. Amen. Now, you realize the change in meaning here. What do you think the man meant when he said, good teacher? What he meant? Respectful teacher. He was being respectful. He meant Jesus was a good man, morally good. He meant that he taught good things. Good. Jesus changes the meaning of good to absolute goodness. Why do you call me that? There's no man one but good but God alone. Well. Why is Jesus doing that? a couple things? Of course, behind this is the fact that Jesus Himself is God, and He's He's hinting at, hinting at, at that. But also, I believe it's it's somewhat of a rebuke to the young man because what Jesus the point Jesus wants to make is it isn't your goodness that's going to get you to come life. Come on, it's God's goodness that's going to get you to come life. And to further explicate that, Jesus says, "Okay, keep the commandments. You the commandments, keep them." And he lists commandments that all come from the second table of the law that have to do with our relationship. You know, we talk about, people talk about two tables of the, of the law. I don't know what was written on one tablet and what was written on another. But the first table of the law, it's metaphorical. The first tablet is those commands that pertain to God. You shall know the gods for me, you know, and no greater than enemies. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The second table, that begins with honor your father and mother and and the commandments that pertain to our relationships to one another and Jesus it's all those commandments that Jesus gives don't um, um, you know don't murder don't steal don't commit adultery don't bear false witness and he throws in defraud not which isn't one of the ten commandments he kind of takes the place of you shall not covet because of course, course covet something you can't see is is in, in the heart and the guy says them all and Jesus doesn't say, "No, you haven't." It says Jesus looks at him and loves him. And you know, this is not just that Jesus loves everybody because he's the Son of God. Jesus looks at him and says, "What we'll a fine man! Who's who in Galilee? If he wanted to marry your daughter, you'd be happy. Solid, dependable." Financially stable, morally good, upright, respectable in the community. He'll take care of his family well. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He says, one thing you lack. I don't know what the guy thought then. Only one. (laughs) Go. Sell everything you have. Don't throw it away. Give it to the poor. Come. Follow me. Now, this is taking up the cross to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't, at least one time, maybe more than that, but one significant time in the history of the Christian church, one man took this literally. His name was Anton, and he lived in Egypt. His parents had died and left him with a fortune. He walked in the church and heard these words, and it was as if God spoke to him. He provided for his sister, Actually, she went to a hunter, I think. And he then gave the money away, and he became, whom people know today as St. Anthony, he went to the desert and became a monk. Um, But we're we're quite busy to say, to run to say, well, Jesus doesn't expect everybody to give all their money away, and that's true. But let's not pull the sting out of this because the man is asked to give... um, what you can, you can imply it. Whatever stands in the way of you and Jesus, you give it up. Right. But it's, it's more poignant than that because our material goods do stand in our way often. Yes. And, and, and so Jesus isn't kidding when he says to the disciples in a few verses that um, uh, it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, all of us really fall in that category if you look at the whole world. So don't yes. looking at other people might think you don't have much, and some of us have more than others, but we live in America, you know, Um, and, um, um, but here, here, um, Jesus puts his finger on it, and, you know, the disciples have decided to follow Jesus, and this guy appeared to have decided to follow Jesus, he came running, he wanted to follow him. But the Scripture, the, the, the words in the Scripture have to give this kind of impression. His face fell. And he... I, I, I don't like... You know, I always feel it when I'm reading this passage or speaking about this passage. I want it to end differently. Yeah. But it ends the same every time. <laughs> his face falls, and he turns, and runs and walks away sad. Did he not believe in Jesus? No, he still believed Jesus was a good teacher and all that. He walks away sad because he loved something else more than he loved Jesus. And he wasn't willing to die to himself. So here we have Now, then, then as we go on, we have Jesus foretelling his death third time in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now we're getting close. we come from Caesarea Philippi through Galilee down uh, in the area of Judea beyond Jordan. We're coming to, to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they're scared now. They are amazed, they're frightened, they're following, they were falling behind him. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, verse 33. Saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Man, he's getting detailed now. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and will kill him. After three days, he will rise. That goes over their head again. The third time he tells them, puts it right in their face. And what happens immediately next in verse 35? James and John it's kind of like, what do you think, James? I don't know, John. We're getting close to Jerusalem. I think it's time to make our move. We're going to be up there in Jerusalem. Things are going to come to a climax. We need to get this done. And so they come to Jesus. One of the other gospels tell them, tells us that they bring their mama to talk for mm. You know, for a southern born boy, that has that has all kinds of implications. <laughs> you know, you know what that, <laughs> that is Mark, Mark doesn't give us those those uh, those details. But um, um, Kids and says, We want you to do whatever we ask for you, but well, what do you want? <laughs> when you come into your kingdom, one of us may sit on your right and one on your left. Now, the right hand, of course, is the most significant. They haven't, I don't know if they're going to argue between themselves who's going to be right or not, but they're cooperating on getting the right and the left. And Jesus said to them, You know what you're asking. Mm. They think there's going to be a throne in Jerusalem, there's going to be a cross. He says, can you drink the drink? i be baptized with the baptism. I'm going to be baptized with They say, yeah, we can do it. Jesus must have looked at them kind of pitifully and said, with pity in his face, and said, yeah, you will. You will do it. But to have a place on the right and the left is for my Father to give. Immediately, of course, it's going to be two thieves. Um, But that's what they're not, not mine to give. But it's not just James and John. When you read it, all the rest of them are up in the air about it. They're, you know, because James and John beat them to the draw. They're all just as they're all just as up in the air about who's going to be the greatest. And so we've come back again at the end, right here. Jesus is given this most direct uh, passion projection, uh, uh, passion prediction, and they're they're coming close to Jerusalem. They're coming, uh, coming down there right here, right before the crucifixion, and they miss it. They're arguing over who is going to be the greatest. And so we're brought back again to the essence of what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Well, the disciples aren't going to get this until after the crucifixion. There's not a resolution here in Mark's gospel, but that's not for them. But that's not too bad for us because it leaves the question in our hands. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do with Jesus' call to take up the cross and follow him? But we're not left with no example. Because the last verse is beginning with verse 45, going through verse 52. Mm -hmm. Jesus is coming out of Jericho. Now, Jericho's right here. He just crossed the Jordan River. He's on his way up to Jerusalem, and he's coming out out of Jericho. It's the last stop before Jerusalem in this, this narrative in this text. He's coming out of Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. And there's a blind beggar sitting beside the road. His name is Bartimaeus, and that means son of Timaeus. And he heard that it was Jesus who was going by. And what does he do? Hmm. He cries out. Yeah, him. He cries out. And what does he say? He mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Don't miss the son of David part. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. By saying son of David, what is, what is this man saying? Wow. Messiah, he's repeating... He's repeating Peter's confession, really. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tell him, shut up. Don't disturb things. You know, Mm -hmm. Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's got business. Keep your mouth shut. We're all with you. Don't, don't. But then Jesus stops and says, bring him to me. And they they say to him, okay, well, be sure. Cheer up. He's calling for you. And so what does the man do when Jesus calls for him? He got, he got up, and what else? Well, when he got up, there's a little detail there. He threw, his... He, right he threw right off there. his coat. It's all he's got. Mm. He's a blind beggar. He doesn't have anything else. He's not worried about his coat now. He drops throws off, and he comes to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Lord, that I might see? Mm. And so he sees. He's given his sight. And what does it say he does after that, right at the end of this, this chapter? He began to follow Jesus. Jesus. He followed him on the way. On the way where? Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem. On the way to the cross. And finally, blind Bartimaeus typifies the one who takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Now, he has so little that it wasn't hard for him to give it up. But he drops his coat behind. Nothing else is as important as coming to Jesus. He receives his physical sight. Metaphorically, that then is the sight the disciples need to see to see what it means for the, to follow Jesus to the cross. And we're told that he follows them then on the way. He represents, at least metaphorically for us, the one who does leave behind whatever it is. Leave it behind and take up the cross and follow Jesus. Wow. Friends, that's what we are called to. Amen. And there is no way around it. If You're going to be a true follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus deals with you in your life, and me and mine in different ways at different times. I don't know where you are in your own spiritual life and what God is doing in your own heart and life, but I do know that for all of us, sooner or later, there comes a time when he says, you've got to take it cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. I'm calling you to die to your own self centeredness So let me be the center of your life. Yes. And to treat other people like we described, like it's been described here, he calls us to do that. And then again, it is a daily walk. C.S. Lewis talks about every morning when you get out of bed, you have to push that tendency to go back to that old self-centered way of life by God's help away from you again, to to walk that day with with Christ. Amen. So I have decided to follow Jesus. And you have decided to follow Jesus. We've said no turning back. We've said the world behind me and the cross before me, that's exactly what we were called to do. We're going to ask Paul to come lead us in that song. if God has led you to pray or to seek him in any way, you you, you do it this time. We want somebody to pray, somebody will. I will, or plenty of people around here will. Paul?